First, of course, a reminder, if you need to get a hold of us, send your letters to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. If you want to post a message in our new forums, go to thepowercast.com, thepowercast.com, and locate our message forums, and then you can post the messages you want. So, David, I know that you have some very strong opinions about the matter, but I think we ought to air all points of view here on the Paracast, mm-hmm. even if sure. they aren't quite what you would be prepared to accept, and certainly I don't buy it either. But I got a letter from Michael Horn, who is the authorized, understand he's authorized, he's the authorized American representative for the Billy Meyer contacts. Uh-huh, right. And he said so- he's got some good stuff to talk to us about, so... I said so, sure. Okay, so, so what? As the authorized representative, he then claims to believe everything that Billy Meyer is putting forward as fact. Is that correct? Well, I got the impression at least most of it. Okay. So right. we're going to explore that on this week's episode. Okay. Of the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is the Paracast. With your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, you never know what's going to happen next. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes. Where the truth remains hidden, and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier. So, Michael, lots of people starting up as UFO curiosity seekers or those who are involved in investigation will eventually come across the case involving Billy Meyer. So for those who are just getting involved in this thing, what's that all about? Who is he? Well, Billy Meyer is uh, currently a 69-year-old Swiss man. He has one arm, which is actually kind of germane to the case and its evidence in many ways, so I thought I'd just tell you up front. He claims that for the past 64-plus years that he's been having voluntary, wide-awake, face-to-face contact with human beings from another star system. So not abductions, not little gray guys, nothing you know in the dream state or whatever you want to refer to it as, but real-life contacts with humans who look very, very much like us, but virtually indistinguishable from us, and who claim to come from another star system in the direction of what we see in the night skies, the Pleiades. Okay, when did this start? You're saying when he was four or five years old? Uh, five years old is when his first contacts began, uh, shortly after he and his father sighted an unusual silver disc-shaped object flying overhead uh, that uh, neither one of them 
or could identify as anything known to them. His father thought it might have been actually one of Hitler's secret weapons towards the end of the war there, and it wasn't. It was the craft of the first extraterrestrial who would then initiate contacts with young Edward Albert Meyer. All right, the first contact, did these entities or beings actually try to talk to him or what? From what I recall, his first contact was a kind of telepathic one to prepare him for the actual face-to-face contact. And he had at least one, perhaps a number of these telepathic contacts where this elderly man whose uh, name was given as Svath, S-F-A-T-H, spoke to him inside his head. And and he was able to confide in his parish priest. He went to his parish priest before he actually went to his own family about it. And the priest had apparently also been contacted by these people and had been uh, told to be prepared for young Meyer coming to him in a bit of, you know, a questioning state about these experiences. And somehow the priest was assured to his own satisfaction that this was a good and positive thing. And he acted as a mentor and assistant to young Meyer and, you know, gave him assurance and comfort to go ahead with this experience and then he did indeed start to have the face-to-face contacts in a little clearing in a woods next to his uh, you know rural farm-like home there and that began the you know the first face-to-face contacts with these people the progression where to go from there Apparently, he was tutored, if you will, and mentored by Svath for about 11 years. He was taken on board Svath's craft. He was taken to other places. He was shown other things. He was taught by Svath, and also they used technological devices, which could basically impress into his memory and his mind information that he would need for later on in his life. They taught him to be able to telepathically identify over one million different symbols or pictograms that has specific meanings, either a word or a, you know, a context, so that later on he would be able to receive these and actually translate them into German while he would simultaneously type out the information. The transcripts uh, would be the conversations that he would be having later in life with these people that would be for official dissemination. Now, going back a little bit, that's where we were just at, during this period, Apparently, at least he claims that when he was 10 years of age, he was taken one time to meet Mahatma Gandhi in India. He was taken to various other places, in our, at least in our solar system, if not to other parts of the space, the universe. But that those kind of journeys took place far more when he was older. But after his period with Svath and this preparation, he ended up, due to some strange circumstances, briefly in the French Foreign Legion. He's one of the first few people who ever literally walked out across the desert and left the Foreign Legion behind him and survived to tell about it. Uh, he was only 16 at the time. He ended up being tutored for his uh, next 11 years by a woman whose name was Asket, A.S. K-E-T, who claimed to come from a, an adjoining universe to ours, not a you know, solar system or even star system, but an adjoining universe that her people were working in concert with the people of Svath's particular lineage, who would be called, at least in the early times, would be called Pleiadians, and later on it would be revealed that indeed there are no Pleiadians, that their actual name was Playaren. You can see how when we, anyhow, that was a distinction that was set in motion so that the people that would start coming out uh, publicly claiming to, quote-unquote, channel Pleiadians and having contacts with Pleiadians 
would be self-identified as liars because there actually are no Pleiadians. So my little side note here is this. If indeed this story is true, if Meyer indeed has been meeting with humans from another star system who have the capacity, capabilities to get to us and to do all sorts of other stuff, they actually might be just a beat or two ahead of us in terms of our logic and thinking and have figured a few things out. Not to say that they're perfect because they've also demonstrably made mistakes in the case. Uh, we can always get to that. But certainly to say that they took certain precautions that would ultimately bear fruit far uh, you know, later down the line in the context and not necessarily be obvious or discernible early on. All right. Why Billy Meyer? Of all the people in the world, why this kid? Why was he selected for this privilege, honor, or whatever? funny thing just to say when someone is actually selected for this type of thing privilege and honor that it may be it is a brutally thankless job and we'll, we'll cover that in a moment too there were five other people who were potential contactees for this who for various reasons were not the ones who uh, were chosen or chose back or what have you i'll just tell you the information as it appears in the case and i have to kind of give this caveat i can certainly prove in, in my mind, uh, and so far to the satisfaction of some others, to the standard of a reasonable scientific proof beyond a reasonable doubt, actually, that the case is authentic, that the, you know the, these craft are not terrestrial, and that the physical evidence is real and all the rest of it. However, because the case is so rich in information that we cannot yet prove or disprove, I say that we have two things here. We have a factual component that anybody can verify. Nowadays with the Internet, you can do your own searches and figure this out. And then we have the speculative information. So speculative information is a lot of the, the stuff that I'm going to tell you about his life that we can't yet prove is speculative. According to these people, reincarnation is a fact of life. The part or the aspect of the human being that reincarnates is known as the human spirit, not the soul, but the spirit. This is said to be a virtually immortal aspect of us. It's a kind of a hologram, a little part piece of this universe that they call the creation, with the full potential of re-emerging, or re-merging more properly, with the creation at a very, very, very distant time, trillions of years from now, through countless millions and millions of incarnations. That being the premise, the human spirit is, with their technology and their spiritual understanding, the Pleiaran people, trackable, identifiable. They can, uh, at their higher levels, they can identify a spirit and know who it was in its previous in incarnations. In the case of Meyer, it's simply stated, kind of matter-of-factly throughout the teachings, that this particular spirit had played a very similar role in our own history many times in the past as a very specific prophets of the past. And because human beings are involved in this whole, uh, let's just call it a mission, uh, wherever human beings are involved, things can and will get screwed up. So there's no you know, perfect space brothers, ascended masters nonsense going on here. This is a long-standing quote-unquote mission that has centered around these particular people. And I'll just give you a side note. One of the reasons why is because they claim that their own distant forefathers were, in many cases, the gods of our past, and also, in some cases, the progenitors of certain races or through inbreeding, genetic experimentation, what have you, giving rise to certain peoples and or lording it over them as god or various gods of different traditions. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Michael Horn. He's the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer Contacts, and he's got a site called www.theyfly.com for more information. And we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty in a moment, but I wanted to ask a few more questions to get the background, especially for those of our listeners who haven't heard this before. Just kind of a side note of my own. Why is it that when people are reincarnated, in a previous life, they were always a prophet or somebody famous, but right now they're a farmer, a bus driver, or something like that. It seems they're reincarnated to a person who has a rather ordinary existence. Let's look at it this way. Meyer's uh, spirit, you know, just, we'll, we'll say Billy Meyer, his spirit wasn't only incarnated six times in the past. In accordance with the way incarnation and reincarnation works, he's lived many, many, many lifetimes uh, as a man, as a woman, what have you. That spirit is incarnated in different men and women of no particular known abilities, repute, fame, what have you. And prophets are not, uh, this isn't celebrity status. If you look at the life of any prophet or major truth-teller, announcer, and even in different fields, look at Galileo or, you know, p- pick a category in some area. These people are vilified, attacked, harassed, crucified, assaulted, boiled in oil, etc. So it's only our misunderstanding about what fame and celebrity, you know, is and how we give it to people or we uh, exalt people or we uh, put them up on pedestals. Their lives have been miserable. Meyer has survived 21 documented assassination attempts to date. That's a lot of grief to go through for a guy that's supposedly hoaxing irreproducible UFO photographs and physical evidence. So also because we have been religiously indoctrinated into ideas that, you know, give us some idea about perfect beings and deities, saviors and messiahs and and flawless beings, angels and saints, this is a nonsense creation of human, you know, human mentality or lack of it. So we... In our uh, foolishness, actually, create these circumstances. We exalt people, and then we, you know, annihilate them, and then we'll worship them or create myths and tales about them. So Meyer is living a life just like everybody else, and his is a particularly hard life. He was told 10 years before it happened that he was also going to lose his arm and that there was nothing could be done about it. He would have to get used to it, and he would have to live his entire life and fulfill a huge mission with huge obligations with one hand. Well, let me ask you that now. Number one, how do you lose his arm? Number two, well, we have these advanced beings who have been watching us for centuries, thousands of years, millions of years, whatever. They don't have the technology to repair a broken arm, give them a a cybernetic arm or something like that? Sure. Well, the first question was, how did he lose his arm? It turned out that during the 1950s and 60s, Meyer was traveling throughout India, Asia, Africa, the Mideast, and Europe, studying the world's major religions and taking literally hundreds of different types of little jobs to learn different fields. But these weren't in the sciences. These were things, anything from a snake catcher to a private detective, from a language translator to, well, he was hired by certain parties in the Middle East to bring in for trial uh, serial killers and mass murderers. He was known as the Phantom in the early 1960s. We have photographs of him during this time, some of which are on the website. And he lived a life that you would say was something between uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Indiana Jones with, you know, with Close Encounters or Star Wars thrown in. 
So you've got a guy living an unusual life, studying one religion after another. In 1964, he's at an ashram in India where he's studying uh, Buddhism, and he's photographing up to eight of the uh, Asket's craft above the ashram with everybody there witnessing it. And we even have a witness who came forward a few years ago who had been there. Her grandfather was the head of the monastery. She's now a retired U.N. diplomat and reluctantly in retirement and married comes forward and gives an entire presentation on standing up for Meyer. She'd heard people been writing to her about this man. And yes, indeed, we saw him there. We saw these ships. We saw the woman who would come down and talk to him and walk around the grounds. And he's a truthful man. Thank you very much. So going back to how did he lose his arm, they said to him, look, you're going to lose your arm, blah, blah, get used to it. Well, he was in Turkey doing whatever he was doing there. He got on a bus one day. The streets are very narrow and it was very hot. Fortunately or not, the window was open in the bus for a little fresh air, so he sits down next to it and he puts his arm out the window, as many of us have in buses uh, in many places and automobiles. Down this narrow street suddenly barrels a, a, a large truck. Before Meyer can react to it, the truck has passed by and taken, you know, basically his arm with it, or at least done such bad damage that it was uh, virtually off his body. And he was left in a ditch by the side of the road. People thought he was dead. Pulled him out of the, you know, the bus and put him in a ditch uh, in 1965. Rather, not the most sophisticated of medical conditions uh, over there, but they did sever and amputate the damaged part of his arm. Now, you asked why with advanced beings wouldn't they be able to repair that. Well, they could. And they offered it to him. And he probably wisely said, look, I know you can do that for me, but now so many people know I don't have an arm, and suddenly I'm going to have a new arm and a hand, and the danger that would pose to me would outweigh the benefit, because with the kind of technology that you could provide, this would be very, you know, realistic life flight. It would, it would replace my arm, and don't you think I would probably be uh, captured by somebody for that technology? And they said, well, you're, you're actually right. It probably would be that danger, but don't say we didn't offer it. Well, uh, on the other hand, it would, number one, prove what he says is true. And number two, the fact that he could get a new arm, it doesn't mean it would show or demonstrate any technology that's well, sure. advanced. It would just show an arm. Maybe the arm would measure normally when examined well, but, by doctors. Sure, but we know that in 1965, we know his arm was ripped off his body, and there's photographs of him you know, without that arm, and suddenly the arm is back. It would also probably cause one of the things that they don't want, which is some form of veneration, of more kind of attention that would possibly lead to, you know, unnecessary and illogical worship, veneration, let alone attack, uh, scientific experiments. For him, it would be a mess. But I will give you an example where they did intercede, and this was very recent. Uh, and I happen to know this pretty well. I had been, about a year ago, I was in Switzerland, I go over every year. Shortly after I left, Meyer fell. Somebody had moved something around his room or something, and it was very dark. He got up in the middle of the night, and he fell, and he fell forward to protect himself from hitting his head. He put his one good hand out and very, very badly damaged the hand. A break in the little finger, a torn tendon. They had to take him into Switzerland, into Zurich, rather, for x-rays and stuff. And the doctor basically said, we can't do anything with this right now. There's just too much damage. If we start, we might 
create more damage. You're going to have to come back, and we'll see what we can do. And so he was unable to do his work for a bit. And now a friend of mine who was there with me, who uh, a Swedish fellow who had been living in New Zealand and who comes over every year, was there, and he'd, he stayed on after I left. And then he wrote me about this. And then he wrote me that the funniest thing happened. This was like two weeks after he wrote me about Meyer's accident. He said Billy had come into the kitchen, walked over, picked up his cup, poured himself a cup of coffee, and was about to walk out. And, and my friend said to him, Billy, your hand, what happened? He said, well, Quetzal picked me up and took me into the ship, and they decided they would fix it for me. And his hand was fixed. When I saw him after that, he showed me that there was some uh, a little bit of separation still between, I think, the little finger and the other fingers that he had to, with a little bit of will, he had to pull in because there was a little bit still that was not perfect. But it was completely healed other than that, where it was medically confirmed as being enormously damaged. They have done a couple other things for him where he got certain infections, and they said, look, we know you, you want to work this out for yourself, but it, it's actually not practical for the work you're doing. You're going to delay this work if you just devote yourself to that. So we're going to fix this one for you, too. And it's not anything, uh, you know, a real big deal. It was an infection here or there or a broken rib or what have you. So they've done that kind of stuff. Oftentimes, you know, overcoming his protestations because he doesn't want to be treated specially, blah, blah, blah. His life is special enough and uh, nothing that will prove ironclad to people that suddenly, uh-oh, this is the guy that's, you know, the contactee. Well, the question would arise, well, then what about all the other evidence and so-called proof that I am claiming and that other people are claiming exist in the case? Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Michael Horn. He's the authorized America media representative, and I'll have to ask him how he became that for the Billy Meyer contacts. He has a website, www.theyfly.com. That's the two words, theyfly.com, where you can learn more information. So before you fill in that evidence, how were you made the authorized representative? <laughs> well, this goes back a ways. In 1979, I walked into a bookstore here in Los Angeles, and I saw the first coffee table photo book put out by Genesis 3. Genesis 3 was a company, uh, is a company, created by Lee and Britt Elders, who were two of the pioneering investigators on the case, along with the lead investigator, Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens, retired U.S. Air Force, and uh, several other people, Tom Welch, D Jim Delatoso. They spent about six years over in Switzerland doing the hardcore investigation, all the physical 
medical evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And so they put out this first picture book, and that became a worldwide sensation, actually. That book is a collector's item now. And it had the clearest, most amazing photographs of UFOs I'd ever seen. And that, I purchased it and went home and just read everything in there. And several years later, I was in Sedona, Arizona, where they're threatened by the fires currently. Right. I met a, you know, and I met a guy in a little cafe there when I was there with my daughter and some friends. And we got to talking. UFOs came up. The Billy Meyer case came up. And he mentioned that he had these things that he called the contact notes. Did I know about them? I said no. These were about 1,800 pages of transcripts. Uh, remember, I mentioned that at a certain point, Meyer would transcribe his conversations. And my friend here said to me, when you come back to California, you know, L.A., come up to Decker Canyon in Malibu. I'll give you these things. He did. I read them. We'll talk more about that later, but I'm giving you the kind of sequence of events. Uh, within about a year of that or less, I met a fellow named Randy Winters who was going around speaking about the case. We became friends. We co-produced a videotape called The Pleiadian Connection, which is still circulating out there. Then, after that, I decided to do some of my own presentations on the case starting in about 1988. And uh, I've continued to do those for about 18 years. And about five, six years ago, I decided I wanted to actually go to Switzerland and meet Meyer and the other people there, some of the witnesses, etc., and develop a relationship and, and see if I can't do this in a little, you know, more focused and specific manner. So... I did. I met them, and over the couple of years, we built a relationship. And then maybe three years ago, two, three years ago, I said, listen, I'd like to really officially represent you in the media, meaning the following. I will put out your information as you publish it, what you want to have said in this case, providing I can maintain my own point of view. And uh, any skepticism, cynicism, questions or challenges, I don't have to agree with you and everything, blah, blah. And he said, well, of course, that's fine. And we both agreed that we would do this as a voluntary relationship, meaning they wouldn't pay me and I wouldn't pay them, because that would help me also to maintain my autonomy. And r rather than feel at, at a moment, let's say I come upon something I don't agree with or I really don't feel certain about, and I have to say that, or as I have, and I've published things and articles about it, I would have to, at that point, if I was being paid, it would compromise my ability to freely disagree, and then people would also say, as they have anyhow, well, you're paid to do this, so you just believe everything that Billy Meyer says, and which isn't the case. So I got their permission. We signed a little agreement about it, actually, and it was fun because there's, you know, there's no money in it. So that's kind of how I became the representative, I asked. Okay, and I but do you have a day job. Yes, um, I do. I've had many throughout my years here. I've done lots of stuff. I've, I created the fashion fad of fingernail art in the 60s. I was one of the very first people in 95 to do online digital book publishing. I'm a songwriter, a singer, a producer of music, a humorist, an inventor. I created a program called Sit and Get Fit, which is a, a regenerative movement program that I started to teach to corporate and senior citizens, corporate people and senior citizens, and I focus it now mainly just on some seniors that I work with. Average age in my class is at least 85. My oldest student currently is 99. My oldest student of all times was 102, and my youngest student is 16. I also created a uh, therapeutic, you know, kind of educational process called Standing in Spirit that a uh, consultant to Princess Diana 
brought me to Europe in, oh, about 12 years ago to train government and business people in Germany and in Holland. And I've done that program, and I created another one called Future Self, utilizing video. So I've been busy doing a lot of stuff. So my, my current day job is I, I teach a, a few classes in my Sit and Get Fit program to seniors here in L.A., and the rest of the time, a minimum of six to eight hours a day, I spend just doing work related to this on the voluntary basis. Does Billy Meyer have a day job? Uh, he lives with some of his family members and other people. They are constantly working uh, around their property. They live in a kind of rural farm-like environment to some degree, and it's a combination of home, farm, and center for their work. They publish books and photographs at very nominal fees in Switzerland for most of their material. He writes constantly. His contacts are ongoing on a regular basis. He works on the property along with other people when he's not doing the other work. And they live in a somewhat communal fashion. They do not have what is commonly attributed to them a quote-unquote cult. People like to say that. For anybody that's actually been there, they will see that it doesn't fit that standard uh, of behavior or relationship. There's, By the way, there's no Rolls-Royces in the driveways, and people are not bowing down to him. He has, in his community of people, he has only you know one voice and one vote, literally, when they make their decisions about things. He walks around in blue jeans and a work shirt like everyone else, and he's a very kind of straightforward person. There's, a, If you don't know that this is the man that allegedly is traveling uh, with extraterrestrials now and then and through time and space, you would not know there was anything particularly quote-unquote special about him. He does not court that type of, uh, you know, he doesn't have that demeanor and doesn't, you know, in infer or uh, demand either overtly or co covertly that type of, you know, energy and relationship. So he, he has a lot of work and I guess it depends on what you mean by a job, you know. I think if you get a paycheck or you're in a business that provides cash flow, you have a job some way well, to they have cover a your bills. Yeah, they have a non-profit status, and, and that is perhaps as it is here, but for, in Switzerland, it's an enormously specific and very rigorously monitored status. They cannot be, you know, kind of clunking around with different, you know, you know for-profit type of situations. They every year when they have their um, yearly meeting, and the first thing they do is they open the books to the public, as is required by the Swiss law, and they account for every penny that they take in from any means, meaning if any of the people there are donating money, or if they get donations from the outside, from the income, from their sales of things, whatever, uh, they have to account for everything that comes in and everything that comes out. And for six years, I have had the chance, and I do, I look at the books and the ledgers, and for what it's worth, you know, they balance them out. So, and it's a funny concern. I'm not saying you have it, but the funny concern, a lot of people will go to that, go for the juggler. Meyer must be making a fortune on this, and it is anything but the case. They truly live a, I would just call it a modest, high-maintenance existence where there are no princes and princesses sitting around. Everybody works, and they uh, maintain their own lives, and they have other challenges there due to certain circumstances with family members that are incapacitated and all sorts of stuff that just don't fit the mold of some cushy, comfortable, you know, kind of cult-like existence. But I understand that those... You know, rumors get started, and the best way is if people go see for themselves, you know. But if they go, they're going to have to join the folks there and do some work after about 30 minutes of looking at photographs and stuff because they're not really looking for members. They're not trying to recruit people into a cult, and they are saying, if you come to visit, we'll be cordial to you if you have an appointment. You've got 30 minutes of our time for us to help you see whatever you want. And then if you want to stay on, we have shovels and a hose and uh, spades and tractors and all sorts of things that we're always working around here to maintain our place. Come join us. And I, I do that every year because I learn new things about side of life that I haven't really had that much exposure to. Mm -hmm. 
You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking to Michael Horn, authorized America media representative for the Billy Meyer contacts, and they have this website www.theyfly.com. And maybe they do, maybe they don't, and we're going to explore that. Let's look at the evidence, and I want to hold back the photographs till a little bit later in the show because sure. I'm going to hit you hard on it. What sure. other evidence is there to demonstrate that Meyer is telling the truth? Well, then let's say that you want to hold back on photographs, film, and video, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but go ahead. That's fine. Let's go to the sound recording. Is that okay? Fine. Sure. Uh, On four separate occasions, Meyer and his wife at the time went out into at least one or perhaps a couple different open fields in their rural uh, landscape there with cassette tape recorder, and they recorded up to 40 minutes of sounds that, we're told, came from these beam ships, these uh, UFOs. Now, let's look at this a little you know, more closely, and people can read uh, documentation on this for free on the website. Meyer, on one occasion, the sounds were so loud coming from the sky that people were coming from well over a mile away because they were trying to figure out what the sound was. Now, this is done, these were recorded, as I said, in open fields where you didn't have big high stacks of rock and roll amps, feedback systems, amplifiers. You didn't even have a plug. I've seen these fields. These are nice rolling hills and, you know, and, and lovely meadows. There ain't no electricity out there. On one occasion, 17 witnesses were present, including an undercover policeman. And Meyer and his wife recorded all these sounds. They managed to capture at the same time there were three airplanes that flew by. Uh, they didn't see the craft, but flew by during the course of the recording. Now, this will be important in a moment. These sounds were taken by the lead investigators, and they were taken to three separate sound studios for examination. One, I think, was in San Diego, one here in L.A., and then the Naval Undersea Labs in Connecticut, which has the largest sound bank, the largest record of known sounds and sound sources apparently in the world or did at the time they were examining these. With the examination, they found that there were 24 audible sounds, and when they put the sounds into scope, oscilloscope and spectrum analyzers, they found eight other sounds were there. All of the sounds were simultaneously interfacing and present at all time throughout a wide hertz range and forming discrete patterns on these scopes. Now, this was Now, I want to point out something. This is from a cassette recording, you're saying? Yes. Okay, now, a couple of things here. There are practical limitations to the resolution of a cassette recording, number one. Number two, if you take this stuff into a studio, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want to that particular item, and... Believe me, I was editing tapes when I was 12 years old. I was editing what physical you tapes. What do you mean you want? What did you mean? I didn't. I missed that. What do you mean you can do anything you want? Well, I think in terms of sounds, right. with various techniques that a lot of people know in the recording industry, you can create a whole variety of synthetic sounds to imitate almost anything you want, from lightsabers in Star Wars right, right. to anything else. Now, well, as far that. as now, you're claiming here 
that these cassettes have things on them that are beyond the capability to be stored on a tape cassette. Is that what you're saying? Well, let me let me back it up because I, like you, well, not for as, as long perhaps, but I've been in recording studios for about 30 years myself and I've, in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. I can tell you the following. The sounds that are, uh, and again, you can read the actual, much more about the technology applied to testing these and the results of those tests on a free document called photo analysis that well may be in the article section of my site. They were able to determine not only what sounds were, but that these interfacing sounds would have required at the time a bank of synthesizers to create and to apply in this overlay of simultaneous sounds that were going on. When they took it to the sound bank in uh, Connecticut, the naval facility, they said these sounds are coming from a rotating device for which we have nothing in our sound bank. We do not have anything on record that makes the sound. Now, we can identify these three airplanes that are briefly caught in this recording. We know what those engines are, and they list what the planes that were flying by, which were consistent with planes that were available in Switzerland at the time and flying around. They said, however, there is too much discrete information going on simultaneously in specific patterns here that we cannot duplicate these sounds ourselves, and to date, no Nobody has duplicated these sounds. That doesn't mean they haven't duplicated a sound from the tape. They have not been able to duplicate the complexity and the overlay of those sounds that were recorded back in the late 70s or 1980. I'll tell you what. Let me put the challenge to you. My co-host, David Biedney, is among his many skills a pretty decent recording guy. And we have several other people whom I'm in contact with who are also skilled recording people. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to get me a copy Download of this Download them recording? for free right off the website. And if okay. that quality isn't good enough, we can probably get you a CD with a few minutes of them. But they're up there for free. Okay. It's, uh, you do whatever you like. Just put them up on Scope or what have you. And then, you know, feel free to get back. Yeah. You know, we offered this to the top professional skeptics. We said, look, why not? you want physical evidence. Really, the sounds are, if you have trouble here with these photographs, since you can't duplicate those, and you can't duplicate the films. Well, I'll, I'll stop there. I think yeah. you, can, you can duplicate the photos. You, well, can, duplicate, gonna, gonna you can duplicate any photo you want, but let's go back to the other one. Let's sure. go back to the sounds. Right. So what you want to do is you want to download those sounds, and then you want to uh, do your best to, you know, to duplicate them. Not the effect. You have to duplicate them. That means you've got to be able to get all of the sounds that are present in his recording to be occurring at the same time as they do in his recording even if you only do it for three minutes that'd be fair enough but that's part of part of the challenge here we have william burns the publisher of ufo magazine on the line william can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine yes i sure can this is ufo magazine and i'm bill burns the publisher and here's an offer for your listeners we have a special five issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, 
Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Okay, well, we're going to look at those sounds Surely. and maybe get a picture as to what might be happening there. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Michael Horn joins us. He's the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer Contacts. And you go to www.theyfly.com to learn more. And now we get to the photos. And yep. I want to tell you something here. Now, here's where we get to a slippery slope. I'm looking at a couple of articles here. One is from Peter Brooksmith. You're familiar with it? Uh-huh. Okay. I the think P- so. Okay. The article has a subtitle, The Camera Never Lies? Question mark, okay. And he shows areas with these photos that are questionable. And I have to tell you that anybody using a photo imaging program can create all sorts of images that may be difficult to separate but will look pretty darn good. And those who have seen the early previews of the movie Superman Returns certainly believe that Superman can fly. Let me give you some answers. If I'm recalling, and I don't have his article right in front of me, but if I'm recalling correctly, he has referred to some photographs that were provided, I think, by Cal Korf. Is that in that article? I'm looking at the article right now, and I don't see that at the beginning here. Okay. He is mentioning Cal Korf here. Right. However, I'm interested in the photo not who provided them. Let's forget about who provided them, even though we understand that gentleman is a skeptic. Okay. No, he's not only a skeptic, he had to go on the air and apologize publicly uh, to Art Bell twice for lying about him. He falsified Meyer's photos himself. I happen to have met three years ago at the Santa Clarita, no, Santa Clara, at the UFO Expo up there, Bay Area UFO Expo, there was a guy who Korf had approached to do some graphics work for him, and he asked him how he could make a certain effect so these photos would appear to have little strings on them or things like that. Now, I'm going to leave that part alone because I no longer have got this guy's card and his name. I'm going to read you a couple of sections of the article for your comment, too, but let's go ahead. So here's here's what I want to tell you about the photographs. Meyer took his first photographs in 1964 in India in a remote part of India, Maroli, India, outside of New Delhi. He didn't take his next photographs till 1975, after he lost his arm. From 75 till about 1980 or so, he took approximately 1,200 daytime photos with up to four craft in them. In addition, he took nine film segments and a video. Now, the photographs were taken before there were home computers and Photoshop. Meyer, with one hand, was not a model maker. He was not a high-tech guy. He did not have the technology in 1975, let alone 64, to be making photographs that would pass muster and that would be convincing enough to, uh, let's say, give some of the scientific experts uh, a chance to give a nod to it and say, this indeed is not hoaxed. Now, in addition, there is a, a, a photo analysis document on the website. That photo analysis document 
lists the technologies that were employed, the specific technologies and equipment that were employed in examining Myers photographs and how they were able to determine that they were not models or special effects of any kind. You have to be able to go over that information. And I'll tell you something, if you and or your friend David are technologically oriented, you probably are more so than I am. Okay, let me explain something to you also that David's one of the foremost Photoshop experts in the world. He was an early beta tester. He worked with Industrial Light and Magic to do movie special effects. Good. So he knows his stuff. But I'm going to read you a couple of pieces here from this article. I want your sure. comments because even without the aid of computer enhancement, the photographs are dubious. This is what the article says, by the way. It's mm -hmm. not my opinion. It's the article. Mm -hmm. Shadows on the Palladian craft do not conform to the light in the landscape, and the sharpness of the UFO images indicates that the object shown extremely close to the camera as a model would be. The ground saucer watch estimate is that the various spaceships are in fact between 8 and 12 inches in diameter. Fuzziness that would result from atmospheric effects is often lacking. So we're talking not that so much here. Actually, I have to interrupt you because that happens to be not only false, it's one of the specific things that they were able to establish was absolutely present in Myers' photographs. Who established uh, this? This was established uh, through testing done at Design Technology of Poway, California. Hold on. I'll, I mean, I can, we can bore everybody here with the stuff. But this is all available to read. I really do want to cover a few specifics here. I don't want to cover every nook and cranny. We couldn't do that. Kodak but the fact is, is the photographs are controversial, and I think it's important that we cover a few of Let's these specifics. Let's do it. So let me jump on a couple aspects of that, and I can just give you some of the stuff. They had their testing done at a whole number of places, including this place, Design technology. They were also, they had their negatives made from Kodak of Geneva. Their a design technology that confirmed the authenticity of the photos holds contracts with NASA, J JPL, and the U.S. Navy, as well as General Dynamics Engineering and other companies. I'm just looking through something really briefly here because this document is very extensive on what they did. Now, I am going to, within the next couple of days, there is an article going up on my website on Bay Fly, which is probably going to blow all those arguments out of the water. And strangely enough, it's going to blow them out of the water because it has it deals with the photographs of what are called the wedding cake UFO, the most controversial of all of Meyer's shot that people have been jumping up and down screaming this has to be a fake and a model. Now, I'll jump back to one thing you said about models and all this. When they were doing the analysis of the films and all, and the photographs. They were finding, they were using edge enhancement techniques and looking for these very specific things to show, and they did show that Myers objects had contour and a lack of distinct edge when the craft were indeed farther away. This has to be read very carefully, and I will trust that you and David will really go over the document and the photographs. And I'll tell you two other things. Uh, Wally Gentleman was a special effects expert uh, in Canada. He was with the Canadian Film Board. He was one of the directors of special effects for 2001. And he said, when he saw Myers' photos and films, he said, either there's an unknown master at work who knows how to correctly, you know, deal with the shadows and lighting, and he's got a crew of about 15 people and $100,000, or I'm looking at the real thing. Now, I personally, a year and a half ago, went into a company called Uncharted Territory. Uncharted Territory did the Academy Award-winning special effects for Independence Day. They know special effects. I brought them the Meyer photos, and I brought them the Meyer films. 
and a video. I showed them this stuff, and the two owners of the company, one guy's name is Folker and one is Mark, and I said, my skeptical friends told me that these are models, and before I could get the next sentence out, both of the guys laughed, and they said, we know models, those aren't models. All right, I let me drop another quote here, okay? Sure. All right, this is again using ground saucer watch, and they made a computer analysis. It says, evidence is of a linear structure above the craft, in plain English, a string or rod supporting the object. The structure is equally clear in the computerized enlargement in the second image. In addition, study of the focus of this picture indicates that the object is close to the camera and is therefore small, about eight inches across, not 23 feet as claimed. Now, these are specific analyses, one where they feel they could find evidence of this a entire, string. Yeah. There is evidence that, again, that it this is debunked. a small craft, not a large one. It was debunked in total. There's a, uh, probably a link to that on my site as well. Uh, there are two links, one to James Deardorff's site. When you go to James Deardorff's site, you're going to see several pages of photographic analysis, and including, I believe, a debunking of the ground saucer watch, which had a tremendous agenda to debunk the Meyer case. And frankly, their debunking goes it goes right in the face of all of the testing that was done. You had Robert Post from JPL saying, and this is a guy that had mixed feelings about the the the, uh, the Meyer evidence. On one hand, he said this can't be real. On the other hand, he says it's got to be real. You you had people who are, are just head and shoulders above the ground saucer watch guys who had a big a big axe to grind with the Meyer case. You had Eric Eliason from U.S. Geological Survey, and he created image processing software like so that astrogeologists can analyze the photographs you know, of planets and stuff. What he said was, in the photographs, there were no sharp breaks where you could see it had been somehow artificially dubbed. And if the dubbing was registered in the film, the computer would have seen it. We, don't, we didn't see anything. Robert Post, JPL, 22 years. From a photography standpoint, you couldn't see anything that was fake about the Meyer photos. That's what struck me. They looked like legitimate photos. photos. I thought, God, if this is real, this is going to be something. Okay, here's something from Michael Mallon, from Mars Orbiter and, and NASA's Mars Global Surveyor, Michael Mallon. Quote, I find the photographs themselves credible. They're good photographs. They appear to represent a real phenomenon. The story that some farmer in Switzerland is on a first-name basis with dozens of aliens who come to visit him, I find that incredible, but I find the photographs more credible. They're reasonable evidence of something. What that something is, I don't know. And he said, if the photos are hoaxes, then I am intrigued by the quality of the hoax. How did he do it? I'm always interested in seeing a master at work. You've got uh, Nippon TV that analyzed the films and said, we can't find any special effects. We can't find any hoaxing in this. You've got, uh, you've got too many real experts, not ground saucer watch, who wanted to debunk the Meyer case and do it harm. And we have not only that, we've got Marcel Vogel. When you go into the other evidence, you've got the sound analysis people. You've got Marcel Vogel from IBM who analyzed the metal samples. And you've got David Froning. And this one, people should pay attention to. I met this guy. He came to a presentation of mine. When, when he was contacted, the first time he was contacted for his opinion on the case, he already had 25 years uh, in uh, work in, in military defense through McDonnell Douglas. And he had a couple quotes. And, and he was looking at the information that my had on hyperspace propulsion that Meyer had published, and Froning was startled at his own arbitrary flight time computations he was doing with his group of scientists. They were within 20% of the flight time mentioned by Meyer. 
who he said must have some very knowledgeable people advising him. And then he publicly stated the following, my colleagues and I may have made breakthroughs in our understanding of possibilities and ways for traveling faster than light from Billy Myers' accounts of his encounters with the Playaren. This is a, is a published astrophysicist, not some guy who's trying to debunk the Meyer case who could never produce one photograph of comparable quality. And when I challenged CFI West, IIG, James Randi, Michael Shermer, and all these guys to duplicate Meyer's photos, and they said they could do it, when they came up with their six little photos of a UFO model, I said, fine, guys, now submit them to the testing. And they said, no, we won't. The same testing standards that revealed Myers' photos were not little 80-inch objects on strings. Okay, let's so do this here. That. Let's do this here then. Sure. What we need to do here is I'm going to have David examine more of the photos, do some more detailed work, and he'll get in touch with you with regard to any specific evidence that he needs. But Fair I'm enough. just going to tell you he has no axe to grind. He's seen a no, UFO himself. We have no axe to grind on the show. We are neither here <laughs> to buy or not buy the claims of Billy Meyer. We're not here to disprove or prove anything. We're here to present the information and try on the basis of that to find out what's really happening, but we have no preconditions. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Michael Horn, the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer contacts. Go to theyfly.com. You don't need the www if you're sick and tired of that, and you can get more information. Let's look at one other interesting information here. Now, here's a document that supposedly is dated 1958. Mm-hmm. Posted on your website, or actually on a, on a related website, it's called Warning to All Governments of Europe, Prophecies and Predictions. Now, right. supposedly, it started out, this material, in 1958, except that, I'm kind of confused here, there's a letter, it's signed September 4th, 2005, but still claims this all came before then. I'm trying to straighten me out here. I'm a little bit confused over the timelines. Did this My all happen in 58, all these predictions? The, pr the predictions are stated by Meyer as having been published by him in 1958 and sent to the 25 governments of Europe, which were Later, you know, be now called the European Union. The letter of September was his explanation about this, you know, this document that would follow. Okay. Now, how do we know that this really happened in 1958? Is well, there you know, external that's a evidence? Question. That's a legitimate question, and it's one. In some cases, this is where I have my own problems, quote unquote. I have things in this case. For instance, let me jump to a prophecy, and I don't think it's in here. It's in one of the other things. In 1981, there was a document dated 1981 where Meyer was foretelling, among many things, many many things, uh, that France uh, in Paris would be uh, riots and arson, and, and actually that Paris would fall to uh, riots and arson from within, and it would be the inhabitants themselves of the Islamic faith that would cause this trouble. He republished another document from 1987 in which this was reiterated. Now, I read the first document, the 81 document, in 1986. 
I read the 1987 document in 2002. I put this information on my DVD in 2004 about Paris riots, burning, uh, murder, what have you, all that. Now, Paris did not fall, but as you know, in late October, November of 2005, there was arson and rioting and murder in Paris. The inhabitants of the Islamic faith were the primary perpetrators of it. A prophecy, as opposed to a prediction in these terms, prophecies are meant as warnings. These are the probable outcomes according to the laws of cause and effect. These events will occur unless people correct their actions and thinking in time. If they don't, then these prophecies will turn into predictions, predictions being those things that are foretold as will happen without a shadow of a doubt. In the 1981 and the 87 prophecies, they foretold this destruction in Paris. They also foretold Islam will rage across Europe. In the future, the United States of America will have two civil wars and break up into five territories and tons of other stuff. If you read the Hanak prophecies, currently linked from my website. What are the key things that were allegedly predicted? in this particular document. Which which document now? We're talking about prophecies and predictions. Right. Now we've got a bunch of them. We've got 1981 that I just referred to. Okay, we have a total here, and I'm just counting it, 162 different items. In this document. Okay. In this document, among the uh, primary things that were you know, prophesied or predicted, however the case may be, or certainly uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, two U.S. wars uh, with Iraq, the second one that would be um, headed up by uh, a man who would be president, who would be the son of a former president, the second war will lead to, quote-unquote, an unbelievable disaster and to torturing as well as mass murder through U.S. armed forces. He foretells AIDS, uh, the crystal meth epidemic, the dates for certain moon landings and uh, moon launches, you know, rockets to the moon. There are literally, as you said, already dozens and dozens of specific things in here, some which haven't occurred, some which may be in the process of occurring, and some which certainly have occurred. So we legitimately can say, well, how do we know he predicted this, and how do we know this is true? I say on this document, I I do not have an original on this 58 document. I have myself had the other documents, as I said, the 1981 document, I had that in my possession first in 86. I still have a copy of it. And the 87 document I didn't have in possession until 2002, but things have already been fulfilled from it. So we can legitimately argue about, well, is this particular document, uh, can we prove this, this particular one originated this time? That's fair enough. But what if we find that we can prove that certain prophecies and or predictions were indeed published prior to their occurrence, and not general things, but very specific things. In some cases, things with dated events of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, assassinations, wars, terrorist acts, etc., and that they were indeed published before they occurred. Will that give us a significantly good enough reason to read the content of this case and to think it through for ourselves and see if we can discern what they're trying to tell us about these and and coming times, and if we feel that they have indeed a significant foundation of credibility for their information, will we take some of the advice and redirect 
our actions on an individual and collective basis so as to avoid what they are foretelling specifically, which as far as you and I uh, and our listeners here in the U.S. are concerned, boils down to the complete and total destruction of this country, which could take place in a fairly reasonable period of time. And I mean reasonable only in terms of years, not that it's a reasonable event. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. All right, let me hit, we hit you with one other aspect on sure. this letter. I'm looking at the bottom, which is, I guess, a letter from you, an email dated 21 May 2006. And it says, P.S., Meyer confirmed that the five actual U.S. manned moon landings took place after the first faked one in 1969. Now, i got to do one thing, and then I'm going to ask you about that one. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Michael Horn, authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer Contacts, joins us. The website is www.theyfly.com. We'll just say theyfly.com, and you can learn all about it. So let me read that one more time. Now I've kept you in suspense. A P.S. to this letter that Michael wrote. Meyer confirmed that the five actual U.S. manned moon landings took place after the first faked one in 1969. What faked one? Tell me more. According to the information that you're referring to, if you go to number 14 in that whole list of prophecies, and by now you know people may have been able to open up that document for themselves, it says here, while a sixth moon landing, supposedly the first, on August 20th, 1969, will rest only on a worldwide staged deceit as a result of the political armament race with the Soviet Union. When you click on that link, you'll get then... Uh, the information from the 30th contact in 1989, this information has been is here spoken by Meyer and or the, the ET is, is speaking with him. Now, what, what this is, let's use the word allegedly here, just in all integrity and honesty. We have a translation here of part of a contact that took place in 1989. And this is where an explanation is made that the United States actually faked the first moon landing in July 20th, 1969, in order to get a, you know, a head up on the Soviet Union at that time as a psychological effect. They, and, of course, in the document that we've just referred to with item 14, he speaks about the fact that the, the U.S. actually did have five successful moon landings, but that this was not one of them. Now, is that true? Can I prove it from this document? No can't prove it uh, from this document. For instance, there is a thing in this one that we're linked to where I go down about, oh, maybe a third of the page, 
And Meyer says, also it makes me wonder why the Yankees actually never let anything be heard, that on the South Pole and North Pole of the moon there are big areas where permanent daytime rules, as I had seen, as in my earlier youth in the year 1946, from Svath, and then in 1975 also from Samyaze, who would provide the possibility to behold the moon from up close and to see the aerospace junk that the Earthlings had transported there. Okay, well, I don't know if the, that little bit there about the permanent daytime is a common knowledge, and if it's true or not, but I think that's kind of interesting. If it's a, if it's not common knowledge, or it wasn't in 1989, and if it proves to be true, it's kind of a little note, an aside in this contact that these guys dug up, we would have yet another piece of information kind of incidentally placed that might either lend credence to and support the you know prophetic accuracy of Meyer's information, or it might not if indeed it was already well known at the time. If it was well known at the time, it certainly wouldn't validate Meyer's prophetic ability, but it wouldn't discredit the accuracy of the information. Then well, I want to really hit on this one, though, because yes. one of the popular conspiracy theories is that one or more of our moon landings were faked. It was a hoax. Yep, a hoax. Now, is there any evidence the first one was? Really? Any real evidence for this? I, well, this I don't know. Uh, I know that there are people that claim that, as you as you've mentioned, they have, they have films out and they've got websites showing why they are claiming that it was a hoax. And then there's the people that say, well, that's not true for this reason. I was never particularly interested in whether or not that's a big hoax. That's not the, the focal point of my you know, purpose here. And I'm, so it's like up for people to decide whether or not, based on whatever they have access to, it was the first landing a hoax or not. The fact that Meyer is saying it, kind of predicting it, if you will, in, allegedly in 1958 as a matter of fact, is simply part of this, this prophecy. Again, I can't prove that that's true or not. You could go to number 23 where he says, because of unrestricted prostitution in about 25 years, an already embryonic deadly epidemic will develop worldwide that will be named AIDS and will finally cost several hundred million human lives, or any of this stuff in here. Now, some of it you can say, well, anybody could have come up with it. But I can point you to stuff on my website in my document where information that Meyer published on October 19, 1978, about the rings of Jupiter and the nature of Io being the most volcanically active body in the solar system and other specific unknown facts about Jupiter were not confirmed until March of 1979. And the lead investigator in the case had this document in his possession, which also contained 10 specific predictions, the last of which didn't come true until 1984 or five years after he had in his possession. Well, let me just go into some very important considerations here, and that is the alleged goals of the space people. Now, Billy Meyer is not the only guy out there who claims to have had contacts. If we, if we go back to 1952 and 1953, we have George Adamski. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, his entities came from Venus, allegedly, or Mars, and they look very much like the Michael Rennie character in the movie Day of the Earth Stood Still. Right. Some feel that George Adamski did this not so much to prove that he actually contacted anyone, but to spread his religious beliefs of peace and brotherhood and put them in the mouths of space people. Now, are there any people other than Billy Meyer around this world who have real contacts? Is he the only guy, or are there others, men, women, uh, whatever? What he has said is he's the only guy having contacts with these people. There have been and may still be other people that have some type of contact with some other beings. For the most part, 
according to him, at least as of recently, at this time there are no other true extraterrestrial to human contacts going on. But they have gone on in the past. There was an American named Daniel Fry who was having legitimate genuine contacts back a couple decades ago. That might be subject to question, too. I know who he was. and that's... Fine. Oh, that's, it simply said that he, in the Meyer case, they said this man was a genuine contactee. Okay. They, they claim that most of the people that whose names we may know who are running around saying they're contactees are not contactees. And my challenge has gone out. So any and all these people, I've had battles with many of them saying, well, will you just send a little proof my way? I said, you know, we have to jump through an awful lot of hoops with the Meyer case, which is fine for, you know, establishing a proof beyond a reasonable doubt criteria. And no, none of you folks have anything in the way of real evidence. You simply are giving what amounts to feel-good, nonsensical, channeled information that anybody could do, you know, in their sleep. And where's the proof? And none of them provide proof for it. Well, Does you know, I have a question about and a concern about the motivations here that... Mm -hmm. You can contact this farmer in Europe, and maybe those contacts are genuine, maybe they're not. Right now, to use the vernacular, I don't buy it yet, but I'm happy to give you your form to express what you want and let our listeners decide what they want. However, I would think that these space people who are so advanced, if they wanted to convey a message that people would accept, instead of finding some isolated person whom a few thousand or a few hundred thousand would believe, they'd land on the U.N. lawn and say, because maybe they don't care about what the U.S. or U.K. or different government mm -hmm. bodies, land on the U.N. lawn or hover above the U.N. and come on down and say, okay, here we are, this is our message, you got to deal with it. Let me give you an answer to that. You are a guy that's pretty open-minded. You've you're, you're got healthy skepticism. As you say, you don't buy the Meyer case. How many people are on the planet right now? Approximately 7 billion. So let's just say that they do what you suggest and they land or they hover over the cities. The majority of people, I would say, let's just say there's 7 billion people. I'm going to bet you right now, based on what you've even said, that about 6.9 million of them are not quite ready to have uninvited visitors from the stars descend on the planet. I'd say that you're going to have several billion people go into psychosis, uh, panic, attack, veneration, every combination of violation of free will. Because if nothing else, free will, our free will, in this case, cannot be violated. An overt offer of contact was made in 1979 to the U.S. government, the administration of President Carter. I still have a copy of that letter. It was forwarded from uh, Switzerland to lead investigators, Wendell, uh, well, Wendell Stevens, but to Lee and Britt Elders, and because of their connections with people in the Carter administration, they presented this letter to the Carter administration, and the contact was turned down cold. Now, I will tell you that I'm not surprised it was turned down because of the way that the thing was written and what the, the qualifications in there were, the, the standards that would have to be conformed to. And I think it was done from an enormously unrealistic point of view uh, based on who we are and how we operate. But this overture was made directly. And another answer is it is simply because a so-called obscure Swiss farmer has been having these contacts and has had the strength of character to survive not only the attacks on his character but on his person and his family and his life, 
that we're hearing about this case. That's why, to, to date, on my website alone, people from 90 countries, millions of people, have been hearing about the Meyer contacts, and every day thousands more hear about it. They wrestle with it. They think it's a hoax. They, quote-unquote, believe it. They want to research it and find out if it's true or not, and all possibilities. So our logic about, well, they should land, this shows that we do not even respect our own free will. I don't want somebody imposing any more than I want somebody coming to my door and walking into my house and trying to impose their religion on me. I don't want somebody else from outside of our field of control to try to impose their existence upon me. And that's the very reason why our governments, our religions, our economic systems, and all the rest could not tolerate such an overture any more than the masses of humanity, because it would say, we exist, we are immune to any control from any terrestrial force, and if we decide to, we will show up when we want to, and you're going to have to accept it. That is a violation of free will, and that is what was at the core of the foundation thousands of years ago of many of our religions, when people were primitive and hadn't seen as much as a bicycle or a flashlight, and the gods of the time were descending and landing and representing themselves as the creators of the universe, and starting cultic religions that we all today can sit by the sidelines and watch how they go head-to-head along with secular forces to blow up our world. So they're not going to do that. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking to Michael Horn, the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer contacts. Go to theyfly.com, theyfly.com, put the www ahead of it, whatever your preference, whatever you like to do when you get online to get more information. I'm going to only ask one or two more, and then we're going to let you listeners, if you have an opinion, go to theparacast.com, visit our forums. Put your opinions. We'll be discussing it in the next few weeks. And the one or two questions I'll ask start this way. There are rumors that the U.S. government and maybe other governments around the world have acquired pieces of crashed UFOs. We talk about Roswell, stuff like that. True or not, what do you think? Well, uh, again, as the representative for the case, let me say this. I've asked Meyer this question myself on three separate occasions in person, and it's been asked online. The answer is yes. The majority of so-called UFOs that we're seeing in our skies, especially over the U.S., according to the information in this case, are strictly terrestrial. They are secret U.S. military fighter craft, and there are other groups on on the planet that have and or have had this type of technology, which is not as sophisticated as the true extraterrestrial UFOs, but some of it is reverse-engineered craft technology. And yes, that stuff belongs to terrestrial forces and not extraterrestrial forces linked to those sightings. Very often have been things like so-called alien abductions, cattle mutilations and things, which are not being conducted, certainly not anywhere near in the volume and frequency 
by any extraterrestrial forces, though some in the past had done contact examinations. I'm just giving you the broad brush here. England, Canada, Russia, and the U.S. were four countries that had this technology shortly after the Second World War when they acquired the information from the Germans who had been building such craft. At this time, China may also have some of these type of craft in development. You will not get any official acknowledgement. And one of the reasons that Meyer and his folks have acknowledged this and what they've said is there is indeed a danger that a false, quote-unquote, UFO attack would be enacted by forces in the U.S. government in order to bring a complete control over the country and maybe other places under the name of protecting the citizenry from aliens from outer space. And people need to wake up to that and stop being so fascinated with UFOs. That's the least important part of this whole deal. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. Michael Horn, authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer contacts. If you go to theyfly.com, you'll get more information. One more time, Michael, a final word for our listeners before we send you away. <laughs> okay. First, I really want to thank you because I much prefer your style of interviewing to softball questions and people that are simply believers in things. We're not going to get anywhere by believing, whether it's believing in religions, politics, or Billy Meyer's UFOs. We will only get somewhere by critical thinking and examining very, very hard evidence and examining it very hard. I will say to you that, in my opinion, this is either the biggest and most impenetrable hoax or the most important story in all of human history. It is thoroughly devoted to helping us assure ourselves of our future survival and avoiding a third world war that is said to be quite possible in, within a short period of time, especially if the policies in our own country here are allowed to go forward. If we attack Iran, according to Meyer, the Russian and Chinese people will probably come together and attack our country, and Israel will be wiped off the map. For those that have any soft feelings towards either of our uh, countries um, and other countries in the world, we might want to avoid this. You can check the information out for its credibility yourself and see if they are telling any kind of truth. If you have your online discussion forum and questions arise and real hard challenges, I'd be more than delighted at any time to arrange to either try to address them via this format or any other way. And I'll, if I can throw in one last pitch, if I may, Go ahead. anybody anybody that gets the Meyer Contacts DVD from my site uh, that's a listener to, to your show, we're going to send them a free $15 gift, and all they have to do is just say free gift, and we'll do that as a courtesy because you're such a good, tenacious host, and I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the PowerCast. My pleasure. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Next. 
First, of course, a reminder, if you need to get a hold of us, send your letters to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. If you want to post a message in our new forums, go to theparacast.com, theparacast.com, and locate our message forums, and then you can post the messages you want. All right, here. Now, I assume that if Michael Horn ran for Congress, he'd be great because he knows how to filibuster. Mm-hmm. He's a good speaker. We, we, uh, I actually like the way he, uh, he talks. Yes, he seems like a pleasant person, and certainly when I asked him for a copy of the Stevie D right. that he was talking about, he sent us a copy, and we'll talk Stevie about D. it in a moment. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of things that came to mind here. Number one is he's told by the aliens, Billy Meyer, that he's going to lose his arm and must live with it. Okay. Right. We don't have to live with it. No. The, when it happens, though, the aliens say, you know what, we'll restore your arm, okay? And he says no. So I just wonder here, if the aliens tell him he's going to lose his arm and has to live with it, why would they offer to bring his arm back? Why, indeed, would they have made an offer like this and not done it? I, what Michael said is that Billy Meyer didn't want to appear as if anything strange happened, that if he had not had his arm and all of a sudden had his arm then that would have appeared weird, not that lots of fake photographs and uh, lots of contrived stories don't make them appear weird. Okay. Um, Look, again, Gene, Michael spoke in a very nice professional way. He indeed would make a great politician. But uh, as Max Hedrum used to say, how do you know when a politician is lying? His lips move. Here's the thing. There are so many things that Michael said during the interview that triggered so many alarms in me. And really what it boils down to is that, and and I don't want to just jump the gun here, but let's just get it right out. Billy Meyer has created for some group of people that he has identified as as a demographic of some sort, a demographic of his. Billy Meyer has created an entire belief system that encompasses politics, religion, and pseudosciences. And it's basically, here's what's scary, Gene. This religion is designed with, I think, you and me as its demographic. Okay. This is what these guys going. They have a Michael You and says, me speak for yourself, my friend. Yeah. No, 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 no. Definitely. We are people who don't trust the government. We are people who are open to new ideas. We are people who I'm, I'll speak for both of us. I think we'd look we'd both like to be optimistic about the potential for human beings to, you know, emerge from this nightmare we've created for ourselves. And we both like to believe in a number of the tenets that Billy Meyer puts forward in his writings. You know, the idea that humans could potentially be a noble creature, which I don't know. At this point, I'm sort of on the fence about that. But if you if you read through what they present, effectively, it's an entire encapsulated belief system, all the way to the point where Billy Meyer is put forward as a prophet. Look at the writings. He is a prophet. Michael essentially came out and said that, that he has reincarnated as this prophet being, that he has been a prophet in previous lives, which is why he's still a prophet now, which is why these creatures found him. I find it fascinating, Gene, that in order to appear to be absolute in his infallibility, Billy Myers positions himself as the only person who is maintaining any kind of communication with extraterrestrial beings, or as Michael Horn said, well, at least those beings. We don't know about those other beings, but as far as our beings, it's only Billy Meyer who is the authorized spokesperson. Excuse me, and, and I, you know, you were good about it in the interview, Gene, but Michael brings up as the one legitimate other contactee, Daniel Fry. 
<laughs> what the hell was that? Daniel Fry wrote a book back right. in the 1950s called The mm -hmm. White Sands Incident, right. and in which he described this meeting involving an alien. So in order to buy into the Billy Meyer stuff, you have to believe then that the Daniel Fry stories were true, too. That's where he went to New York in a flying saucer and back in 30 right. minutes. Oh, man. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be good here, Gene. Uh, like you said, we like to present all points of view and all opinions on the show. We like to give everybody a chance to express themselves. Certainly, we let Sean David Morton express himself. We let Michael Horn express himself. But at the same time, as I've said to you on the show before, and I've said to our listeners, I'm really interested in arriving at some truth about these paranormal things, be they UFOs, ghosts, reincarnation, manifestations of things that we don't understand. It, it seems to me, after looking over the mountain of evidence that Billy Meyer possesses, the irrefutable physical evidence, that it's a bunch of nonsense. And I don't appreciate that these guys position themselves as the only viable UFO contactee situation to the discredit of any others, because basically Michael Horn came out and said it, and in Billy Meyer's writings you see this over and over again, that he's the only person who's in touch with these beings, and that anybody else who claims to have any sort of experiences of a close encounter at you know, level is making it up. That includes abductions, I presume. Well, absolutely. That would include everything. If you listen to what these guys say, and if you start to analyze it, and again, if you look at what Billy Myers has written, you know, there's a tremendous amount of stuff, like Michael Horn says, there are all of these um, predictions that Billy Myers supposedly wrote back in the 50s and the 60s. Of course, the only source of verification for the notion that he published any of this stuff is uh, uh, Billy Myers. So it's all nonsense, Gene, essentially. It's a bunch of crap. And all you have to do is look at the fact that Billy Myers calls himself a prophet. You know, a prophet needs to have an entire belief system sitting underneath of him in order to have any viability. Billy Myers has fabricated this belief system. They keep bringing up all of the great photographs. Now, oh, I have to calm down. My blood pressure right, Take a deep breath. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, listeners of the Powercast, David Biedney is going to take a deep breath because he's going to talk about those photographs, and they raise his blood pressure. And we don't want anything to happen to David. We like David. And therefore, David, just count to ten, and let's hear it. Dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis. All right. So, Not quite ten, but we'll go. For oh, I know, I know. We'll we'll we'll, we'll live with this with the magic six. It's the mystical six, Gene. I should have gone to seven. Siete. So you look at these photographs, and uh, we both got copies of the DVD. Michael Horn was very generous in sending this out. And we appreciate it. But uh, you look at the irrefutable evidence in those DVDs, and uh, it's nonsense. Where do you start? Photographs, the, the sounds that are irreproducible by any means, that there's no way that they could have been generated synthetically. Uh, I listened to those sounds. I downloaded the sound file on the website. And all I can say is Moog. <laughs> I mean, what we hear when we listen to this sound file, at least what I heard, were the traditional sounds of a Moog synthesizer, where its oscillators were set to... Um, feedback to the point where they go into what's called self-oscillation. I heard distinctive traces of an analog echo, an analog delay, so you have that echo regeneration sound. You have a few different instances of this sound, this oscillator self-generation, self-feedback sound mixed together. It's, it's nonsensical. 
it is clearly a fabricated sound. Any audio expert who told them, well, there's no way we could reproduce this, obviously has never been near a Moog modular synthesizer. I, on the other hand, have spent quality time around Moog modular synthesizers. And, uh, Gene, this sound is uh, fairly trivial to fabricate. But let's pull back from that for a minute, because here they have what they claim is a sound of one of the beam ships. Well, Gene, one element of most contemporary UFO sightings that seems fairly common is that most UFOs make absolutely no sound whatsoever. Let's talk about the photographs now, briefly. Yeah. Now, my impression in reading some of the quotes that I found in doing research is that if the photographs are rendered as fakes, the photos they analyze were falsifications and not the real ones. Well, when they talk about the photographs, uh, one of the things that they say, one of the things the Myers people say is that, how could a one-armed guy have created these fakes? To which I respond, helpers. Uh, <laughs> you know, how can a one-armed guy have to pull the, all of this off by himself? Well, the answer is that he didn't. He had people who were helping him out, like all good uh, pranksters do. Pranksters tend to move in packs. I've been a prankster in my life as well, so I know how this works. One of the things that they, when Michael talks about these photographs, these photographs are obviously faked. Any reasonably good photographic expert can look at these and see all of the problems with scale, all of the problems with lighting, all of the problems with shadows. And then, of course, there's the fact that if you begin to dig, you find that, indeed, there are negatives that were found in Billy Myers' farm that show one of these ships sitting on a tabletop that clearly show its model. And when he was questioned about this, Billy Meyer claims that these photographs were indeed of models made by his children after what he described what he saw. I mean, you know, that's just disingenuous at best. At worst, it's deceiving. And so, you know, when you've got that level of... <laughs> my brain is like imploding with this stuff, Gene. And, and I'm, of course, thinking about having watched that DVD like I think you did as well, we're presented with a fairly static set of bullet points that are supposed to be evidence. We're basically asked to take all of this at face value and to look at all of these writings that Myers has done and, you know, what possible motivation could he have? Why would he fabricate such a thing? There have been all these attempts on his life. None of this is substantiated. None of this, if they're presenting this written stuff, this written bunch of bubamysis <laughs> as evidence, then it's just ridiculous. And, and the problem, Gene, that I have with these guys is that, as we mentioned before, they claim, well, oh, no, we didn't talk about this. They claim that all, or at least most other UFO sightings are government military technology that's been kept under wraps what about the ones back in the 19th century i really want to know about how the government manufactured that technology like the aurora thing like what happened supposedly happened in aurora texas well that was supposedly a fake anyway but you know david i think that you and i could do almost a whole show debunking billy meyer and others of his ilk but the problem with the whole thing is and i can understand jim mosley's point of view here with jim mosley early on became disinterested in ufo sightings because they seemed repetitious to him and became very interested in the personalities around the ufo enigma however the paracast is not the national inquirer of ufos jim mosley 
has done his job and continues to do his job very well. And I'm hoping that in future episodes, we'll get more and more people who have a lot of interesting things to say so we can get past this level and get on to the next level. Honestly, yes, personalities are involved because we're talking about endeavors that involve humans, but I'm not interested in these personality wars, Gene. Uh, there are a lot of them going on in this field. I'm interested in the topic. I'm interested in trying to understand some realities of what what's going on. Uh, as far as the personalities go, I find that they get in the way. Uh, let's move into the facts and leave the people behind. You know, we don't, we don't make any money at this at this point, Gene. The point is that we don't have a commercial agenda here. At least I don't. I entered into the show with you with the understanding that we were going to talk about these topics and try to arrive at some understanding of what's really going on. And that continues to be what drives me to do this. It's certainly not some big paycheck. It's not some potential payoff. It's, well, yeah, there is a payoff. The payoff is to try to understand what's happening. Well, we'll try to do a lot more of that on future episodes of The Powercast. The Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Powercast.